Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Opasnost, opasnost, we think. Um, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. We have its pronunciation, right? I don't want to. I don't want to. Stalingrad. Oh, is it? We've. Have we decided it's Stalingrad? No, I, I'm still Stalin. Well, welcome everybody to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the Second <laughs> World War podcast, and the topic for the next uh, two or three pods, three or four. I mean, the thing is, is when we did Alamein before Christmas. Um, uh, or in the autumn, rather, um, the idea was to do a couple, and we never even got the first one. We got into that thing, and the battle didn't start for three or four podcasts because we were setting things up. <laughs> so the, 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 we're here to talk about the Battle of Stalingrad, which, of course, reaches its climax on the 2nd of February 1943, 80 years ago. You know, 1943, I always think, is kind of an un... Kind of gets a, apart from the Battle of Kursk, maybe it's a sort of understated year, but it's actually the year when you know when the the cookie crumbles for the Germans, really, doesn't it? It's a massive year. It's a defeat. Yeah. Of the, it's defeat of the Wolf Packs. It's Dam's yeah. Raid. It's the start of the all-out strategic air campaign. Yeah, it's Sicily. It's Kursk. Yeah, it's, it's Italy. And it's of course Italy. It's, Kursk. And of yeah, course, I it's, mean, it's Stalingrad. Yeah. Yeah, or the, the 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 end of the end of Stalingrad. Now I'm uh, now or Stalingrad. You see, we've done it already, haven't we? We've, we've done it already, we haven't we? Yeah, but just before we get going, I want to do like a, a very very briefly. A um, if you go to Wikipedia, here are the bare bones of the thing before we get started. Twenty third of August, nineteen forty two, to the second of February, nineteen forty three. Five months, one week, and three days. Location, Stalingrad, <laughs> known as Volgograd now, of course, and known as Volgograd before it was Stalingrad. So, But perhaps not for much longer. Not for much longer, it seems. Result, Soviet victory, destruction of the German Sixth Army, destruction of the Italian Eighth Army. Yep, right? tragedy. It's very, again, it's very important. Territorial changes, expulsion of the Axis from the Caucasus, reversing their gains in the 1942 summer campaign. And then the one I want to just linger on for a moment is belligerence, because this... This battle, after all, is seen as a German Germany versus Soviet Union, you know, mega clash showdown. But yeah, but it's not. It's not belligerence on one side, Soviet Soviet Union, and after all, the Soviet Union is a conglomeration in itself. Um, yes, of course, a lot of different states. But Germany, Romania, Italy, Hungary, Croatia. Can you believe it? Th- the fact that those other countries are involved are very much part of how how this. Um, uh, campaign plays out and is also part of the sort of compacted super tragedy of this entire event that you've got all yep. sorts of people from from Germany's allies and being Germ- one of Germany's allies is very much um, uh, <laughs> a the shitty end of the stick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, okay, with different ways of putting it. But, um, uh, uh, you, you know, and also the countries themselves have got all sorts of um, issues anyway with yes. sort of internal corruption and grift and power structures and equipment all and all that stuff. And this is the sort of, you c- if it's, if it is the climactic battle of the Eastern front, which I think it's fair to argue that it might be. Uh, yeah. I mean, once, well, we, we'll once we've forensically gone through it, we can, <laughs> we'll we can draw some conclusions, but it absolutely is. Yeah. I think it's worth remembering that part of what's going on here is that the Germans have presented to their allies this idea, and you know this is why you have all sorts of French, you know, French people fighting in this battle as well, or in the Eastern Front as well. This is the this is the showdown with communism, with with yep. Bolshevism, and there, there there's a there's a sort of Europe versus uh, the the evil Bolsheviks thing is where this all starts for a lot of people, and then on by the second of February it's ended up somewhere. Really, very, very, very different, and um, I think you've got to you've got to remember that that that's part of what's going on on the Eastern Front. Before you get bogged down, you know, you've got to remember the other belligerents, why they're there, what they're like. Before we get into, you know, uh, uh, what 
the German offensive on the Eastern Front is because it's not a German offensive. It's a, coal- a, a coalition. It's a coalition offensive. Well, it's, it's an alliance offensive. Yeah. But, yeah. You know, they're not coalition partners. They're allies. They are formal yeah. allies. Um, yeah. And there is a difference. I mean, it is really interesting, isn't it? Because apart from the sort of counterattack, um, this is very successful counterattack opposite Moscow at the beginning of December 1941, which, which you yeah. know, I've said a zillion times, I think was was, was really, really very significant. Yeah. Nonetheless, militarily, it's been pretty much one-way traffic. Yeah. You know, what, what has defeated Germany or prevented Germany from defeating the Soviet Union outright so far has been a combination of overextended lines logistics, yeah. um, overambition. Yeah. And weather. Yeah, yeah. But there is no question that kind of, you know, man for man at this stage, the Germans are kind of, <laughs> you know, they have the they have the upper hand. They do. A- and what you see up at, up until the twenty third of, of August is it is largely one way traffic. There are there yeah. are bumps in the way for the Germans, but but the but the movement is steadily going eastwards and southeastwards and not backwards. From the moment Stalingrad battle is over it's completely the opposite direction. Yeah. And then largely it's the other way. Yeah. And so that is why it is the apex. That's why yeah. it is the tipping point. Yeah. I mean, 1942, essentially for the Germans, though, for all that is a year of repeating the mistakes of the f- previous year. Well, I, I, I think what we should do is I think we should look at where yeah. we're at at the beginning of 1942. Okay. Let's go through exactly it because then. lots of stuff is going on and it's not all about... Moscow in the south, no. and the Caucasus, and Stalingrad. No. Even you know, there's also a massive battle going on at Leningrad, right up in the north. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's something that kind of the siege of Leningrad seems to be a kind of sort of bubble or, or, or all on its own. But I wonder how many people actually sort of know know what happened. So, yeah, Leningrad gets under siege, you know, by Army Group North, German Army Group North, pushing forward. Reaches up, gets the Baltic states in July and August, pushes on through, gets to Leningrad, is within the city gates pretty much yeah. um, by September, and the whole city is under siege. And it's you know it's it's right on the on the on the sea, and there's this yeah. the, there's the big the between the Baltic and and Lake Ladoga, mm. um, and you've also got f- troops from Finland pressing down from the north, yeah, and have captured two thirds of Lake Lagoda's shores yeah. by September as well. Yep. So it is, you know, it's like a pincer movement around around Leningrad. And this is a great big commitment by the Germans, isn't it? It's a massive commitment. Ma- massive, massive effort. Yep. And it's also, you know, it's a symptom and a cause of German sort of prevarication about objectives and dilution of effort and, and all that sort of stuff. All they, that. Because, because Barbarossa is plagued by the problem of what actually do we do? Now we've made such advances. What what do we expend our effort on? Where is our main thrust? And the thing is, the scale of the Eastern Front it's also enormous. That even your you know this because because Leningrad, I think mentally for it, it, you know certainly kind of in my imagination because it's static. It's just, it's like a sideshow. It's a static effort by the the Germans mm. because the siege runs for so long. It feels yep. like nothing's happening there. It's not dynamic, but it's still nevertheless an enormous investment of men material. Yep supplies and all that sort of stuff that of course you could use somewhere else um uh, yeah. and the the, the the germans are so tied up in it i think i think it's a really good place to start because it kind of tells you what what's going on in the bigger picture and the bigger picture after all is the is the hit the picture hit the thinks he understands but actually given this siege shows he really doesn't he doesn't really know what he doesn't really know what levers he's pulling right no, he, he wants to do sort of everything all at once. And, and exactly. what, he's, what he's failing to understand is the absolute, and, and this is a rigid Prussian stroke German principle of war, which is concentration of force. Yeah. You know, and, and in all the Blitzkrieg years, they've done this absolutely brilliantly. This is what yeah. they do really, really well. Yeah. And, you know, you think about the huge encirclements of, of the war in the, in, on the Eastern Front. You know, every single one of those is bigger than the encirclement of the Belgians and the Dutch and the French yeah, and the British yeah. in 1940. Yeah. But had they focused all their strength on, you know, say, for example, they went straight out for Leningrad and Baltic states, Leningrad cleared all that, got the Baltic coastline. You've got various rivers that can sort of protect your flanks. So you've got all that. You stop there at September, and then you do a massive drive south towards Moscow yeah. in 1942. 
yeah. then you've got a chance because you, you're massing your forces, and and, and you, you know you could easily kind of push into you could could push it, get Smolensk and get get the uh, western half of Ukraine, the breadbasket, and all the rest of it, and stick behind the Dnieper. So you can have a really big front, but no, you can't do that. You've got to push on and push on, and you've got to kind of do everything. And you, you know, it's just. It's absolutely crazy. And what happens at, at Leningrad over the winter of 1941-42, they have this what the, the the Russians there have this this lifeline which is on the southern part of Lake Ladoga. Yeah. And there's these these two railheads, the Volkov and the and the Tikvin on the far side. And they manage to to basically keep that that breadline open. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, keep it running. Uh, and then they do this incredible thing where they create this sort of um Lake Ladoga freezes over in the winter and so they mm. create this this um corduroy road you know we're using yeah. logs yeah straight across the lake it's absolutely extraordinary but the plan for the germans is to absolutely completely destroy leningrad that you know yeah. the, the whole point is it's it's they're going to get into the city and then they're going to level the entire thing this this is this is not about just capturing the city they're going to absolutely raise it yeah you know and this this is to utterly crush Soviet morale, Russian morale, and do something that's so appalling, so devastating, that it will encourage the Red Army to fold. That's yeah. that's the plan. Yeah. And the Germans do manage to take Tikvin on the 9th of November. But despite that, they don't get Volkov, and the city is still holding out. Yeah. Uh, and this is the point where they have the road of life, which is this this you know corduroy road of logs mm. going across, across the lake. I mean, it is yeah. absolutely astonishing. Yeah. And the whole siege is just utterly brutal because, of course, you know it's a low, it's a huge way further north. Hmm. And winter in Leningrad is not a pleasant place to be if you don't have heating and fires and yeah, you know, electricity and all the rest of it. Uh, and so you have hundreds of thousands dying, starving, dying of disease, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And yeah. it's horrendous. You know, first of all, the dogs are eaten, then the cats are eaten, and then the dead that are left in the streets are eaten. You know, so it's it's just it's super super grim. And, and that's where you've got to with, with Leningrad by the start of 1942. But further south, you know, you, you've had this... Marshal Timoshenko has done this counterattack. Yeah. And pushed the Germans back. And it's interesting. You know, one of the guys I've, I've, I've always been quite interested in is Hermann Balk. You know, and he's the guy who's the commander of the 1st Rifle Regiment, part of the 1st Panzer Division. He's the guy yeah. who's leading the troops across the River Meuse at Sedan, you know, yeah. on the 13th of May, 1940. But by um, by the beginning of March, he's a senior staff officer and he's about to take over command of a, of a panzer division. And he keeps a diary. And in his diary on the 3rd of March, 1942, he writes, an interesting question is, what are the Russians capable of doing in the spring? One thing is clear. If we can grasp the initiative again, they will be finished. I mean, the thing is... And that's a widespread view. Well, yeah, but the thing is, is that the interesting thing is he's sort of right, isn't he? But the yep. but the prob the problem is, is that the German thinking is so muddled. They can grasp the initiative all they like, but they're not going to do anything. They don't. Yep. They're not thinking in terms of actually doing something decisive. So, because they're like like we said just now, they're they're trying to do everything all at once, aren't they? So so yep. even if they can grasp the initiative. They're not. They're not going to. They're not going to be able to finish the Russians. And and the the, the story. The story of 1942 is basically the longer you leave things, the longer the Germans can't actually force a decision. The worse things get for them because Allied industrial power is um, is sort of stabilizing and starting to deliver. You know, the, the American economy has been completely redirected. The Russian, the Soviet economy has been completely redirected this time. So. Uh, Things are one thing in the 3rd of March, yep. 1942, but by September, they're completely yep. different. The clock is ticking literally all the time. And yet, and yeah. yet because of these huge distances, there are you can't defeat the, the clock and, and, you, and you, can't, yeah. you can only go so fast. Yeah. And one of the problems that the Germans have is the nature of their fighting machine, which is to front load everything. And we've talked about this before, this idea of having yeah. you know, these panzer armies where you know, 90% of your armour is in these four armies. Yeah. Well, that's fine. But what happens when they start attriting and they do get attrited, they get blown up and they get destroyed and they, yeah. you know, they shed tracks and, and they run out of fuel and they need replacement transmissions and engines yeah. and, and all the rest of it. And so inevitably, the further you go, the slower you're going to get. So, yeah. you, you, you know, you do have to have these pauses. 
Having yeah. said that, you know, for the Soviets and for Stalin, the dilemma is exactly what Balk is suggesting. Yeah, yeah, completely. Once the summer comes, once springer comes, once the traditional campaigning seasons, you, you, you know, for the Red Army in in winter of 1941-42, the weather was a very useful kind of fifth arm. Yeah. But but that's obviously going to go once the spring comes. You've suddenly got these incredibly yeah. hot summers in the, in, the, in the central part of Soviet Union and yeah. And in the South. So obviously that's a huge advantage to the Germans. And, you know, there's no question that by moving all these 2,400 factories or whatever it is from the from the western part of the Soviet Union to behind the Urals, which is 500, 600 miles further east than Moscow, that takes time. And that, that has a hiccup. That, that means that yeah. your production necessarily has a lull. Yeah. Um, while you're kind of moving everything, moving all the workers, getting everything up and running and, you know, redirecting key minerals and ores and you know yeah. all the rest of it and oil and building pipelines from the from the Caucasus up to the Urals yeah. you know all that happens over this winter of 1940 42 uh, and um you know that obviously takes time and and the problem is for Stalin and and Stavka and the GKO which is the, the effectively the war cabinet the problem for them is is that can they get this all up and running to a sufficient number quickly yeah. enough yeah and they all know that the crucial bit is going to be the summer of 1942. Yeah. If they can just hold out then, yeah. then inevitably the scales are going to tip in their favour because of just weight of industry, weight of yeah. numbers is going to going to prevail. And as much as there isn't a bottomless pit of Soviet manpower, there definitely isn't a bottomless pit of German manpower. You, you know, the, the, Germans are, the Germans are very are more up against that constraint than the... Soviets are, which is the old story of German warfare. Anyway, you need to you need a quick decision because your resources are limited, your manpower is limited in a way that in a way that the you know the Russians have have, have expended manpower <laughs> uh, uh, more more profligately. Um, yeah, it's not just because they've got the people; it's also the, the way that the way the way they've done things traditionally. I mean, it. Yeah. I mean, it's it is it isn't you know. You, you you come back to though um, these th- if if you can focus your thinking and focus on what you're trying to achieve um, rather than muddle it you, you'll you'll probably succeed in 1942 and it's that yep. the, the Soviets are able able to do that and the Germans aren't is sort of the key to the the key to how the year plays out isn't it yes completely and one that Stalin in this time has decided to to be more collegiate about how he's running the war. He's, he's getting there. He's getting there. He's getting there, but he's, he's taking advice. He's listening to people. And of course, we have to be careful here because the, because the, you know, after the war, the German generals all said, well, Hitler didn't listen to a word we said. And um, uh, he, he, all the mistakes that got made were his mistakes. And we were poor us, you know, that's the thing you've got to be careful of, but basically Hitler's indecision and, lack of focus in what the Germans try to achieve in 1942 is at the root of where they, you know, they, they've, they've an opportunity at the start of the year and they, and they set about squandering it, I think is the way to look at it. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think it's interesting because I think when you look at Hitler and Stalin, they're both, they're both obviously, you know, total control freaks. They're both um, yeah. Yeah, um, autocrats. They brook no dissent, all that kind of stuff. Mm. It's, it's interesting that as, as the war progresses, so Hitler's interference gets worse and his micromanaging gets worse. Yeah. What you see with Stalin is that his micromanaging is really bad in 1941 and is almost yeah. purely responsible for those huge encirclements. Certainly, the, you know, the encirclement of Kiev in September 1941 is entirely yeah. down to him. Everyone, everyone on the ground is going, we need to pull back. And he's going, yeah. no way, Jose. And so, yeah. you know, 750,000 people get in the bag every yeah. single time. What you see, I think, in the course of 1942 is Hitler gets worse. You know, so so there are, you know, let's say the spring of 1942, they're on a kind of equal footing of both being equally annoying to to, to the people who are trying to fight. Yeah, they're working with, yeah. They're both interfering. They're both being control freaks. They're both trying to micromanage. What you see as the, as the year progresses is that Stalin, while never for one minute losing his absolutely grip. iron stiff grip yeah starts to back off whereas hitler gets worse so they kind of sort of pass each other 
they've yeah. kind of they, they they've reached a kind of equal level, and and then the graphs are sort of going in the opposite directions. Yeah. After the kind of sort of say, let's say, the middle of 1942. But I do but, think it's interesting because in the spring of 1942, you've got this. You know, the, for the Soviet Union, the the dilemma for Stalin, for Stavka, for the GKO, the the dilemma is. You know that the Germans are going to do a big offensive. You know that you're not ready yet because you haven't got your factories fully up and running yet. The the, the revolution, the the that's an unfortunate word for for the Red Army, but but the the evolution of the Red Army from the purges of the late 1930s to yeah. something that's half decent is is a work in process, um, in progress rather. It hasn't quite developed yet. Some of the better people are starting to emerge. Sort of the better, you know, Rokossovsky's just starting to kind of, you know, appear yep. on the scene. The Chukovs, yep. uh, um, the Konyevs, the Zukovs. Obviously, Zukov's good, but you know, th- these guys are starting to come to the fore, and, and they're kind of the, the less good are kind of falling a bit more to the kind of side. But but it hasn't yep. quite happened yet. It hasn't developed yet. And it's can they resist? Can the Red Army resist? the renewed spring and summer offensive that they know the Germans are going to do. And what's the best thing to do? Is it best to kind of try and uh, attack now and try and disrupt German plans? Or yeah. do you build up strength and just wait for them to come and just 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 take it on the chin? Yeah. Timoshenko, who is survived the purges, who is one of the old school generals, who um, is a personal friend of Stalin's as much as that's possible, um, and who Stalin likes, urges him to counterattack. Yeah. Just come on, let's let's do it. We should we should take the initiative. We've taken this initiative. His forces, yeah. of course, have had this little sort of smell of blood, this sort of little victory that they've had in December nineteen forty one into January yeah. nineteen forty two. Yeah. And so he's you know, he's feeling quite confident. He thinks, yeah, come on, we can do this. And so the idea is to is to, you know, and we're still here, we're still in eastern Ukraine at this point. So yeah. this, this is this is this is Kharkov. This is where we're talking about, kind of northeast yeah. Ukraine. He says, right, there's this bulge in the line around Izium, which is just south of Kharkiv. You know, these are all names that have suddenly become very familiar again. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. In recent months. And the idea is is that their attack north around Izium mm. and, and get around the north of Kharkov. And what yeah. happens is they're planning to encircle the sixth the German sixth army. Yeah. And what happens is they're able to the Germans are able to hold off this attack on the north and then sweep from the south. And rather than Timoshenko's um, Ukrainian front encircling the, the sixth army, the absolute the opposite, opposite happens. happens. Yeah. And another two hundred and forty thousand Soviet prisoners are taken in the bag, along with twelve hundred tanks and two thousand six hundred guns. You know, and it's just an absolute catastrophe. I mean, the the, the two questions. I mean. It's- First of all, what did what did the two sides know of each other's intentions? Do we what do we know about that? Do, do, how, how good is so, Soviet intelligence of what the Germans are planning and vice versa? Well, well, their, their main intelligence at this point they are getting stuff from from the British, as we know. You know that's yeah. being passed on by the Cambridge lot. Yeah, um, uh, and they also have their partisans, of course, uh, yeah. and the partisans over the winter of nineteen forty one forty two are being increasingly well organized and they yeah. are you know all the people that have survived the encirclements they're now in the woods yeah. and you know they're behind the german yeah. lines and so they're able to report back and say oh, okay well there's a huge build up here i can tell you where yeah. the sick farm is so they know where all these german troops are but you know intelligence is only so so much what they don't have yeah. at this point is the kind of the entire plans for case blue which is is, is a yeah. summer which is what's to come offensive. but then to, to follow to that wh- why are why are the red army still being defeated in such spectacular fashion because they're just not good enough right well yeah exactly but the thing is is that i mean uh, well which leads to the question of why they're not good enough because they've they've spent a year you know they've spent the best part of a year fighting the germans they've got a fair idea of they must by now have a fair idea of what the german way of doing things is um you know what i mean it it, it sort of speaks to maybe a culture that can't quite can't quite do the learning yet yeah, I mean, one of the problems is that you you know when you're attacking, you're always coming into you know if you're attacking the Germans, you're 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 effectively attacking some of their stronger points. Um, yeah, <laughs> and you know, defending is always easier than attacking. Yeah, um, you know, they've had the winter to kind of dig in. Um, they've had the winter to kind of sort of build up their strength. You know, we're talking about May 1942. We're not talking about March. Yeah. So you know, it's yeah. already summer. Um, yeah. That's given the Germans quite a long time, and I, I think the, the, one of the bottom lines is, is they're just not—they don't do it quick enough. I mean, you know, yeah. had they done it in March, it might be a slightly different kettle of fish. Yeah, uh, yeah but they yeah. don't. You know, we're talking about 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 May. You know, twelfth of May is when they attack. 
Interestingly, you know, the Germans haven't attacked at that point. And the reason they haven't attacked at that point is because they're not ready. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. That's, that's indicative of the huge scale of the fighting of the previous year yeah. and into the start of 1942, the huge losses and the replenishments that they need in terms of all supplies. You know, everything has to move up. Yeah. And it's very difficult to do all that, of course, when it's frozen and snow all over the place yeah. and all the rest of it. So that's eating into your time. So really, you can build up all your stuff where, where there isn't snow and ice, you know, and there's still people sort of beavering away trying to repair, you know, to change the loading gauge on railway lines mm. and build up, you know, more, you know, coal yeah. stores and water stops and all the rest of it. I mean, you can imagine why it's taking so long. But, but you know, obviously there's no point in, in launching a major offensive until you're kind of, you think you're kind of half ready. Yeah. Uh, and it takes all that time. But it's also interesting that, that you know, this May 1942, is the moment that Molotov, who is the foreign secretary, effectively, you know, mm. foreign minister for the Soviet mm. Union, that is when Stalin goes, right, you need to go to Britain, you need to go to America, and you need to plead in a big way. And he goes yeah. to Britain and says, you know, what he needs you to do is launch an offensive. You know, start up a right, second front now, and, right, and the British are kind right of cagey. And then yeah. he goes over to Washington, and, and Marshall and Roosevelt go, yeah, no problem at all, uh, which is what, of course, <laughs> indirectly leads to Operation Torch and invasion yeah. of Northwest Africa. Um, but, th- th- but that is where that, that visit west by Molotov takes yeah. place. It's at this moment, at the moment that Timoshenko's counterattack uh, towards Kharkov and the Izium salient has, has failed. Yeah. And to think he was in Berlin the previous spring, or the spring, two springs yeah. before that. Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah, <laughs> look, should we take a should we take a break and then go go? Let's take a brief look break at, and then we need to, we need Paulus, to talk. Who's such a key yeah, character. we need to talk about Six Army. Yeah, yeah, okay. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Um, uh, Stalin and in time, time honoured style, we've we've we're still on May yeah, nineteen forty two. But but, the, but well, but the it's problem is, stuff. it's important stuff, and also it's vast, decent front, even to the point where I mean, we, I mean, quite a while ago when we were talking about Kaliningrad, Königsberg, that, that that there is no one Eastern Front. There are lots of Eastern Fronts. Yeah, correct. Because it's so vast, so many different types of terrain, so many different combatants, you know, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, but Sixth Army, the German Sixth Army yes. commander, yes, Paulus, we need to talk about him. Yes. So this is all to do with, with Timoshenko's counterattack yeah. Yeah. by the Ukrainian front around Rostov and the Don and all the rest of it. Yeah. So, so on the 19th of November, this is, so this is in the southern part. So yeah. on the on the nineteenth of November, nineteen forty one, um, von Kleist's first Panzer Group reaches Rostov on Don. Yeah, it, it's now absolutely pelting with snow. It's completely yeah. miserable. Yeah. On the twentieth of November, nineteen forty one, first Panzer Group seizes the bridge over the Don, and this is this bit here is what we're talking about here is the absolute southeast yeah. of Ukraine. So this is the kind of Donitz Basin. This is yeah. bottom this right is hand corner. The, the, the bottom right hand corner. So you've you've got the Black Sea. You've got the Crimean Peninsula. You've then got a kind of hinge where it drops south along the southern, you know, the, yeah. the eastern edge of the Black Sea. And on that corner, that hinge between southeast Ukraine and the Caucasus, that bit that goes between the Caspian Sea, that stretch of land, you know, we're talking Georgia here and all the rest of it, and Azerbaijan, that bit there, right on that corner, southeast corner of Ukraine, is Rostov and the River Don. Yeah. So that's captured on the 19th, and, and on the 20th, they capture the key bridge. Yeah. And this is the point where... Marshal Semyon Timoshenko then does his counterattack hmm. and forces First Panzer Group back, which, of course, you know, this is the first withdrawal of German troops ever in the Second World War. <laughs> so it's obviously a big deal. Von Rundstedt yeah. resigns, and on the 1st of December, a furious Hitler orders General Walter von Rauchenau, who is the commander of Sixth Army, to take over and halt the withdrawal. Right, yeah. no more withdrawals. And immediately, yeah. Rakanau takes over and he reports to Hitler that, that 
he can't do anything about it. It's too late. Yeah. You know that yeah. he can't reclaim that land. It's it, you know yeah. Timoshenko's forces, the snow, the weather, the conditions yeah, yeah. are kind of running out of everythingness. Um, it, it, it's it's all gone. Hitler then flies down on the third of December to see them in person. You know he's not a happy bunny, mm. and one of the first people he sees is Sepp Dietrich, who is the mm. commander of the SS no. Panzer Division Leibstandarte. Yeah, and Dietrich agrees even with Reichenau. He, yeah, even, even he, he. Yeah, 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 yeah. So at which point Hitler sort of goes, "Okay, maybe you got a point." So he makes <laughs> peace with with von Rundstad, packs him off back to. He wants to retire. He's had enough of the war anyway. Yeah, packs him off. Won't be the last we see of him, but but. That's you know, von Rundstedt's hoping that will be with two hundred fifty thousand yeah. Reichmarks in his back pocket, yeah, and and you know that's that. So Reichenau is <laughs> is now Army Group South Commander, but also concurrently Sixth Army Commander, yeah. which all sounds very familiar to fans of Auchinleck, yeah, in summer of nineteen forty two when he yes, becomes yeah. Commander in Chief of the Middle East, and also at the same time Eighth Army Commander. Yeah. But Reichenau, unlike the orc says, I can't do this. Can't do that. No can do. I need, I need someone else in charge of sick, um, yep. of sixth army. And I recommend my old pal, Friedrich Paulus. Yeah. And Paulus is a really, because von Rakenau and, and Paulus are literally chalk and cheese. Yeah. Von Rakenau is a, is a Prussian aristocrat. He's an absolute bullhead bastard. Yeah. Uh, wears a monocle, looks bad. Yeah. Looks comic evil. Yeah, nothing comic about him at all, but is evil. Yeah, you know he he he's a completely unpleasant person. Yeah, but Paulus has been his chief of staff, and Paulus is really interesting. Renowned as a great a great staff officer. I mean, he's he, uh, uh, and yes. he's one of those people who who's sort of been you know made by the army. Cliches about Prussian soldier class people. He's not that. No, he's from human stock. Exactly, but he is someone that has been made by the army and that has yes. has has found and has found his place in the army. You know, likes dressing up and all that sort of stuff. He's always immaculate. Yeah, yeah, and fastidious, yeah. and yeah. ingratiating towards his seniors. And he absolutely wants to have been a Prussian aristocrat. Yeah, and he acts like it. But that's how you get to be one is in the army, right? You, exactly. You know. Yeah. So, so your yeah. table manners are immaculate. You can talk about yeah. Beethoven and Tchaikovsky, and yeah. and you know, and and <laughs> and you're well read, and you're a man of culture. Um, you're effortlessly polite and always efficient, and nothing's ever late, and all the numbers add up, and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. So he's he's great, and for for a thug like von Rauchenau, Palace is absolutely manner from heaven because he can't be asked to do all that kind of crap. That's yeah. not his bag. He just wants to go and you know beat the shit out of. Red Army types and also incidentally Jews. So, yeah. so what happens is is Paulus is, is a staff officer for for, for von Rauchenau during nineteen forty. And then Halder spots him and realizes that this guy is exactly the kind of guy I need. You know, someone mm. who can dot I's and cross T's and be incredibly efficient and also polite and charming. Um so he pulls him out away from von Rauchenau and gets him back up to the um to the OKH, you know, the um yeah. the the army general staff and puts him on plans. And this is why he's packed off to go and um in, in March 1941, he's told to go and reign in Rommel in North Africa, yeah. tell him to stop being so mad and yeah. you know, do what he's told. Yeah. Um and it's also, you know, he's the guy who's who's as you point out, is is wargaming Barbarossa. Barbarossa. Yeah. And and told to go away and come back with a victory. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> basically, because he exactly wargames that. Barbarossa and says, well, "Actually, this is this is um, impossible, or we're not, you know." Yes, we, and everyone goes, no, get... "No, no, 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 that's not, that won't that's do not what we all. need to hear." Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, given that you know the Battle of France is 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 impossible, you can see why they might have that mindset. Because if you you know wargaming wargaming uh, uh, Falgelb, the Operation Yellow comes up with the. You know the French stopping the Germans, doesn't it? So you could you can maybe see why within that culture they might do that. I mean, it's it's you know I, I emphasise how stupid it is, but but you can see. <laughs> but, but there's a thought process there. But there is a there is a thought process at work, which is that you know so much winning. It's that it's that so much winning. There's going to be so much more winning because 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 we did it before. 
and they're, they're not yeah. taking into account the, the the differences. I mean, he is an anti-Bolshevik, though. Though he 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 was he, oh, he is time. a fry he is a fry corp guy. So so you know, aside from the sort of immaculate table manners and the, him inventing himself as a sort of Prussian military caste man, he is nevertheless entirely politically motivated, particularly regarding fighting the Soviet Union. So we can't you can't you know there there have been attempts to sort of paint him a little as a you know this sort of hapless um uh sap i guess is the word caught in the caught in the whole thing but that that's not the case either is it no 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 he's no in he's, the slightest not at all he's a he's a smart guy um he's actually you know in the big you know for nazis he's not a bad bloke or anything like that you know he's he's not he's certainly not like his boss but but no. you, you know he's also sort of morally a little bit kind of dodgy because he knows exactly what his boss is doing and 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 you know von Rauchenau is the guy who does this notorious order on, yep. on the issues this order on the tenth of October. I mean, first of all, he, you know von Rauchenau has personally ordered three thousand Jews to be shot in Ukraine. Yeah, and, and Sixth Army in Ukraine. You know, and we're talking about that northern corridor of of Kiev and onto yeah. Kharkov and all the rest of it. So, so they're absolutely in that kind of sort of that area of, of yeah. kind of northern part of, of Ukraine. And Rakhonai is absolutely aware of the plans for Babi Yar, for example, you know, which yeah, is yeah. the notorious 33,771 Jews yeah. shot just outside Kiev at the very end of September yeah. 1941. Yeah. And just a few days later, less than two weeks later, he issues this order. Well, I should read out this order. He goes, in this eastern theatre of war, the soldier is not only a man fighting in accordance with the rules of war, but also the ruthless standard bearer of a national ideal and the avenger of all the bestialities perpetrated on the German peoples. For this reason, the soldier must fully appreciate the necessity for the severe but just retribution that must be meted out to the subhuman species of Jewry. So that's von Rauchenau, to whom Paulus is his chief of staff, the man who is interacting with yeah. him every single day. And, and there's an example of a general, you know, who's, who's been listening to what his boss has been telling him. You know, that that's entirely yeah. of a piece with Hitler's um, instructions before... Uh, uh, before yes, this is the March, the March nineteen forty-one. Yeah. You know, there's no yeah. limits, basically. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's a completely straight line between. You know, there's no, there's no general resisting general in what Reichenauer said there, is there? Or generally find this all no, rather he, distasteful. He's an absolute you know? bastard. Yeah, he's a totally horrible piece of work. Yeah, um, absolutely virulently anti-Semitic, virulently anti-Bolshevik, yeah. extremely violent. Yeah, and allowing all sorts of terrible crimes and atrocities on his. I watch. mean, after all, anti-Bolshevism is. You you can argue that anti-Bolshevism is anti-Semitism anyway, because because well, they they're, they're think, absolutely joined at the hip, aren't because they? Because they think Bolshevism is a Jewish invention. You know, Marx is Marx is Jewish. Yes, exactly. You know, the, the Soviet establishments. It's a Jewish were, Bolshevik were full plot. of Jews. Exactly. So so. You know, if if someone's anti-Bolshevik, they're anti-Semitic, and if someone's anti-Semitic, they're anti-Bolshevik. There's the sort of the Nazi ideology is, is so tangled on that that actually separate separating them is sort of basically impossible. But of course, there's a, there's a massive leap between not liking something very much and, or being very anti it, but but then yeah, going around to, sort of butchering people kill. every everywhere you go yeah. and raising villages and etc. Et yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. But yeah. anyway, the, well, of, of the course, good news yeah. the good news for the world. Is that on the twelfth of January, nineteen forty-two, von Rauchenau goes for an early morning run. I mean, you know, I told you he was a bullheaded idiot. Yeah. Um, it's minus twenty degrees, and soon afterwards, over lunch, he's feeling a little bit poorly, um, and promptly then has a massive heart attack and dies. So <laughs> you know, hooray! But 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 Paulus, who has no um, experience whatsoever of of commanding even a division, let alone a corps, before he's given an army. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. a staff. He's an out and out staff officer. Yeah. Suddenly has lost his protector and his guider. Yeah. And so he's on his own. And it's not as though I mean the other day when we were talking to to Ian about the uh, lighthouse of Stalingrad. Yes. Yeah. His book there. You know, he was actually saying saying that you know Palace is quite a good bloke and you know really looks after his men and didn't perpetrate yeah. lots of massacres and all the rest of it. But you know literally he it still didn't stop Sikh army 
and their reputation for going around butchering people. Uh, uh, you know, yeah. on the 29th of January, for example, 1942, um, the village of Komsomolsk, which is near Kharkov, um, 150 houses raised to the ground, eight people shot, including two children burned to death. Mm. So the whole place is just totally destroyed. Yeah. yeah. You know, on, and that that's on his watch. But in a way, that, that isn't surprising. You're, you're, you're at least, you're, you know... You, you, this has been going on for more than half a year. This is the yeah. You're not going to you know, come in as army commander and just stop it just like that. No, because after all, it's what the army's there to do. If 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 you've had people like Reichenauer issuing those orders in October, and you and, and everyone's been briefed that effect in March the, in forty one before before the campaign even begins, the idea that oh, actually, you know what. We're not going to shoot villages up anymore, particularly as anti-partisan action is anti-Semitic action. You know, that again, they don't make a distinction because Jews are regarded as the enemy, so therefore they're partisans. Again, the, the, this, the, the thinking is completely entangled on that too. As if an individual who's a, supposedly a nice guy, but is also rabidly anti-Bolshevik, is going to change his mind. And and, what, and also, what I mean, in, in 41, you've got, you've got a lot of Soviet citizens who are basically hedging their bets because... Um, uh, of course. You know, the further you are from Moscow, the less you like it is a fairly good rule of thumb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, um, the, the, Soviets, the Soviet state didn't like partisan action because it's associated with white Russian action. So the, ideologically, they were opposed to the idea of partisan warfare, yep. which then, as the situation changes, changes along with it. But but these people aren't partisans. These are just people in a village, aren't they? That's the that's the. The bald truth of it. Yes, I suppose the point I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm not much of an, you know, I'm, I'm not prepared to give Paulus that much of a benefit of the doubt because, you know, he's chief of staff when all these absolutely gruesome, yeah, no, brutal no, things I... are going, and, and you know, he, he absolutely, he might be virulently um, anti-Bolshevik, but he knows that that is not acceptable. And just because Hitler said it is, yeah. doesn't make it acceptable. And, yeah. and you know, the, the, and well, this goes back to the same old point about, about, you know, the driver of the of the train going into Auschwitz. They have a choice. You know, we've, yeah. we've had Waitman Bourne on talking about the choice. Mm. You don't have to go and shoot lots of Jews. Nothing's going to happen to you. Um, yeah. You know, and, and an absolute case of this is General Karl Strecker. So he's commander yeah. of 11 Corps. And, not, and, and he was a, just an old-fashioned, you know, Cavalryman, yeah, but but never bought into not national socialism at all. Yeah. He never did. Always thought it was dodgy. Didn't like it, and never ever signed his messages, any memos. Heil Hitler, yeah. So everyone else did. That's what was expected, but he didn't. So he's the he's the honourable. He's the honourable guy. He's the honourable officer that that Paulus imagines himself to be. Right, and and Paulus just isn't. So he yeah. would always. So Strecker would always sign his memos. Forward with God, our belief is in victory. Hail my brave fighters! And he also would countermand what he considered to be illegal orders from above. So, he, yeah. so on his watch, guys didn't go around raising villages. Yeah. So you don't have yeah. to. No. And, and you know, an intelligent man like Paulus must realise that actually going around burning lots of villages is not a particularly sensible idea. Well, and yes. It, it comes back to that thing of you're really going to have to win that war if that's what you're going to do, aren't you? Yes. You can't go. Lo- you can't go losing that one. Um, it, it, it's the that's it's the, the bottom line. <laughs> that's the bottom line, isn't it? Right. So, so I think I, we've got we, we've set the stage. We have our protagonists, or some of them. Yeah. Um, we've got a little bit more. We need we need another five minutes or so. Yeah. No. No. So so let's so let's get us to the point. Um, where we lunge at the Volga. Well, we need to get up to the launch of, of Case Blue, I think. That's yeah, what we yeah, need to exactly. do on this first yeah, episode. Yeah, yeah. So, so on the 28th of March, Franz Halder, who is still the chief of staff, he survived. His his boss, yeah. um, von, von Braukic, has been sacked um, in the yeah. middle of December. Hitler has taken over himself as commander-in-chief of the army. But Halder, yeah. who is von Braukic's chief of staff, has remained as chief of staff of the army, not least because he's an incredibly good planner. He's the guy yeah. who put the plans together for, for 1940, after all. And so he puts forward his plans for summer attack on the Caucasus. This is going to be the main focus, not Moscow. It is going yeah. to be a drive into the Caucasus because they desperately need this fuel. And the yeah. only place where they're going to get this fuel is from the Caucasus. And this this little strip of land, it's not a strip of land, it's obviously a vast strip of land, you know, Georgia and all the rest of it. And Azerbaijan yeah. is where the oil fields are of the Caucasus. This is where Mykop is. This is where Grozny is. This is where Baku is further south. What scale are these oil fields? How much oil are they producing? It's a golden goose, right? It absolutely is, yeah. Right. And, yeah. and of course, 
not only would you benefit from it, but but the Soviets would would be you know they'd have their oil supply cut off at the knees. So yeah, it's a plus one minus one benefit. So in so in theory, uh, and of course we'll we'll come to how actually you know how how on earth would you get the oil out of there? And surely the Soviets would destroy all of it, scorched earth their way. You know that because if it's this obvious. It's obvious to the Soviets, isn't it? I mean, come of on. Of course, we'll get to that. But but you can see the you can see the reasoning there. But the problem is, you're also running a siege of Leningrad. You're also and and the I don't know the thousands of miles between Leningrad and where we're talking about, where you're where you're well, strung out all the way across across the Soviet yep. Union, trying to trying to fight the Russians decisively, uh, uh, Soviets everywhere you can. So yep. it's all very well. I mean, it's. So much of this comes back to that, you know, it's someone on a map with the mentality of a 12-year-old going, oh, the oil's there. Well, we would have that then. Yep. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is the plans that Holder presents are designated Operation Seafried, and yep. then they're in, renamed Operation Blue or Blau, if you're German. Yep. And, and Hitler approves them, and there's going to be these phase lines. There's going to be Blau 1, Blau 2, Blau 3, yeah, and blow, blow four, blue one, two, three, four. Yeah, and the idea is that the first bit is to get Voronezh, which is yeah. this town kind of east of Stalingrad. Get that. That's phase one. Phase yeah. two is then get to the Don, the River yeah. Don, and the River Don kind of wiggles southeastwards until it's about twenty-five miles um, west of Stalingrad, and then yeah. it doglegs back down towards. The Black Sea. So then dog legs back in a sort of southwesterly direction. From going in a southeasterly direction, they go southwesterly. That is the bend in the Don. So that's Blau 2. And then Blau 3 is to take Stalingrad. Yeah. And once you've cleared that bit, so you've got all the kind of all the ground up to the Volga south yeah. of Moscow. Yeah. Then you can then you're safe to turn south and go full concentrated effort. You've got a shoulder with with which to to for the to Soviets pivot. to break themselves on, to pivot and to protect your advance into the Caucasus, uh, and secure Correct. the secure the Caucasus. Yeah. So the Caucasus is then is then blue four. That's the, yeah. so there's these four phase lines, and and and, and Hitler approves this on the fifth of April, nineteen forty two. But the fact we're talking about four phases of a thing that the, the, the geography involved in these four phases, it's vast. I mean the the ambi- You know you can't fault their ambition. <laughs> yeah, but but but, but, but that's that's sort of. I suppose, though, you know, seeing as you know, things have gone so well against the the Russian counteroffensive so far, you're thinking, well, we're we're winning here. You know, the Itzim offensive has failed. Timoshenko has shown that the Soviets are still inept tactically. Yep. You're probably thinking, well, you know, we can we can we can bounce these out of the Soviets easily, and we've done it. But we did it last year. Well, you well you are if you're looking on a map from Rustenburg. Well, exactly. That's exactly. The, 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 we're, we're back to exactly. We're back to there. We're back to the. We're back to the. Someone but, with arrows. But if you're Field, yeah. Field Marshal Theodor von Bock and you're the now the officer yeah. commanding Army Group South, yeah. you're thinking we're not going to start until later in the year than Barbarossa. Yeah. Plan is to yeah. start on the 28th of June. Yeah. 1942. So that's a week later than Barbarossa. Yeah, was a year before, and you've got less troops, and yep. air support, and firepower yep. than you had for Barbarossa, and the distance to Baku, yeah, is further, yeah, and all of these problems are because of Barbarossa, the wastage, the attrition, the damage done in the time since the previous offensive, the main offensive was launched, has put you at this. I mean, what is sixty percent strength, isn't it? Yep. So. You know, 11, 11th Panzer Division, for instance, are at 60% strength. Yeah, so that's that's just been handed to uh, our old friend um, Balk. Herman Balk, who's just been promoted yeah. to Major General. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, he's 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 quite chipper. He's quite confident. He turns up to take command of 11 Panzer and discovers that even after all this time, you know, we're now, we're now in May yeah. 1942. Yeah. For the whole winter to replenish, the whole winter to yeah. kind of sort things out, it's still only 60% strength. Yeah. And that's not a unique case. Yeah. You know, so that's that's a problem. And the cream of German manpower has already gone. You know, the, the, yeah. all, all, all that, the absolute, you know, the pick of the kind of 20 to 26-year-olds 
they're already cool. dead. They've already gone. Yeah. They're already wounded, gone back yeah. to, you know, with minus yeah. a leg, minus an arm and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, st- and still, what? and this time you've still got the Siege of Leningrad going on. Yeah. Which is also yeah. renewed after the, after the winter. Moscow is abandoned, so few. At least that's one less thing to worry about. <laughs> but, yeah, but they've still yeah. got an awful lot to do. And this is this is um, von Manstein. You know, he's one who's doing, who's in charge of seizing and raising and completely destroying Leningrad. And and by this point, by the summer of 1942, a million people have died in Leningrad since the start of the siege. I mean, it is absolutely horrific. But by July 1942. More than a million tons of supplies have been shipped across Lake Lagoda, which is just astonishing. And there are now 310,000 Red Army troops defending it. And they've now got large numbers of guns and ammunition. Yeah. This this throws up a question, Jim. Is Leningrad actually the battle of the Eastern Front and that Stalingrad is the... the, the... Wow, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because what are they doing there? What are they doing there? It's like it, what it, are they it, doing there? There's no movement available. Holding to force, them. keep the siege going. Don't bother attacking. Just like holding force, block it off, so yeah. that you know you don't have the and just. But no, because it, it, it runs runs much longer than the than Stalingrad, and still is is a Soviet victory. Do you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, what, so what happens is they've they've managed to the, the Red Army's managed to move in all these guns into Stalingrad. I mean, into yeah. Leningrad rather. So yeah. they're just firing and just pummeling the Germans, uh, you know, von Manstein's forces. Yeah, and, and there's this amazing PR moment in the summer of 1942 because um, Shostakovich, the, the composer, has in the winter been composing his Seventh Symphony, which he's called Leningrad, mm. and the Leningrad Philharmonic is still just about going. And although there's a huge, great hole in the roof of the uh, of the concert hall, where yeah. a shell has fallen, they do this live broadcast from yeah. Leningrad in I think it's um, August 1942, and it's yeah. broadcast around the world, and it's this absolute galvanizing moment. You know, the Russians love their music and all the rest of it, and despite all horrors, despite everything that's happening, Shostakovich's Seventh Symphony is broadcast around the world on this one night, and. One night only, for some reason, the Germans don't kind of, you know, ham- aren't hammering the city. And so it goes ahead, and it, it's this incredible moment. And then on the 19th of August, the Red Army breaks out, and they effectively yeah. destroy two German divisions. Now, it's still under siege, but it's a preemptive strike against von Manstein's yeah. forces, who yeah. have been softened up and, and delayed starting because of the weight of Red Army artillery yeah. in Leningrad yeah. and you can forget it now you know you can still besiege it but but the idea of actually pushing it having an offensive against Leningrad this side of the winter of 1942-43 ain't gonna happen it's gone yeah. already so again there's just little signs and this is a summer offensive by the Red Army this mm-hmm. isn't in winter this is August so yeah. there's just little signs that there's a there's a there's a gear shift that yeah. that you know the initiative is slightly being taken away from the germans yeah which i think is well is and, kind of but, really but also and also the red army is starting to win things and is gaining in confidence you know you've gone from you've gone from itzium where a quarter of a million guys go in the you know go in the bag to actually you know the germans being preempted the germans being caught out german divisions destroyed in the process you know the the, the it's like the longer you give the the longer you give the Red Army to learn and re-equip, yep. the more they'll take advantage, inevitably take advantage of that time. It is interesting, isn't it? Because Leningrad, because Leningrad, it's static, I think, gets kind of gets forgotten as the, one of the climactic victories or places of victory in the, you know, yep. it's a siege, whereas whereas Stalingrad's a battle, isn't it? There's a, there, there, there's a, there's a to and fro to it. But Leningrad yep. is absolutely as important because the Germans are the Germans again it's this thing of getting hung up on you know they've gone from being the army that understands what you do is you defeat you defeat and destroy an army in an encounter and then you can do what you want politically to getting hung up on political objectives like Leningrad like Stalingrad like Moscow the previous year that you 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 know what you have to do is destroy the Red Army where find it and destroy it 
Yeah. And they've they've gone from that to actually, no, we're gonna we're gonna get hung up on territory. That's a thing that that on the Allied side, you know, Slim understands territories don't don't hold Rangoon. There's no point. Fight the Japanese where they are. You know, yep. if you sit there and wait for them to yep. come to you, they'll they'll come to you and they'll and they'll have the initiative. It's all that. Yep. You know what I mean? And I think mm. I think that's really interesting that the Germans who, perf- who who start off the war knowing that's how you do it, um, yep. gradually forget it. Whereas the Soviets start to think, right, okay, the Germans are going to offer themselves up as a target to us. It, it, by besieging Leningrad, well, we'll destroy them there then. Or if they're going to do that in Stalingrad, we'll destroy them where they are, rather than thinking in, in those, those sort of political terms. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it makes complete sense. Complete yeah. sense. And and, it, and while while von Manstein is sort of making his preparations for for besieging Leningrad, there's other things to do as well because they also realise that that before they get to Operation Operation Blue and, and launching Operation Blue at the end of June 1942. What they need to do first is they need to clear the the Crimean Peninsula, because they're going to need mm. that. Because they reckon recognise, but what you've got is you've got the the you've got Kerch, which again is you know all these these words which now places which are becoming so much more familiar yeah. again. That Kerch is the is the um, eastern part of of the Crimean Peninsula, mm. and and it's a, it, you know it's a hop and a skip away to the Black Sea coast yeah. on yeah. the hinge of the Caucasus. Yeah. And so the point is, is if you can get that and secure the whole of, of, of the Crimean Peninsula, when you want a little bit of reinforcement across the sea hmm. into the Caucasus, you've got that launch point. Yeah. And Hitler doesn't want um, to launch Case Blue until Sebastopol, key city of the Crimean Peninsula, has been taken. Yeah. But, you know, that's not very straightforward. Um, and so... It's a it's a huge operation, absolute huge operation, renewed in in May nineteen forty forty two. Yeah, absolutely overstretches everybody because of the huge amount of ordnance that's brought down there to 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 see it off, including incidentally, this is the first time the um, giant railway guns are used. So you yeah. know, there's an 800 millimeter gun, <laughs> an 88 millimeter gun. It's quite big. 800 millimeters is absolutely huge, huge. Yeah, and it needs 60 steam trains just to move it, <laughs> and ties up 4,120 men. Yeah, and and just to operate one of the two guns requires 500 men. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what Holder I said mean, about it? What Holder said. It's an extraordinary piece of engineering, but quite useless. <laughs> and it doesn't help them win a swift victory. In the end of, of June, not. which is when, of course, Case Blue is supposed to start, Sebastopol is still holding out. And it's that yeah. the point. That's the point. And we've touched on this before when the Germans start using poison gas. Yeah. I mean, the, the Dora basically is a thing for scale modelers to make 80 years later. That's its, that's its prime Soul function. Soul use. Soul use. Soul function. Soul use. Yeah. So Sebastopol, or Sevastopol, depending on which way you call it, Mm. doesn't finally surrender until the 9th of July. Yeah. Um, Huge cost of the Red Army, of course, but also, you know, the the Germans lose 25,000 men taking Sevastopol. Yeah. And 70,000 overall in the Crimea. I mean, that's a useful number of people that you might need. Well, and and while Soviet manpower isn't infinite, but is a deeper, is deeper. Uh, yep. a, a deeper well from which to draw German manpower is much more limited. It absolutely is. I mean, it's not yeah. unlimited in the Soviet Union, but it's but it, but there's there's more yeah. elasticity to it. Let's yeah. put it that yeah. way than, than yeah. there is the Germans. Yeah. And, you know, the interesting thing about the Crimea and the and the and the, um, and the Battle of Sebastopol is that the Germans are using 135 railway wagons every day God. to support that. So you've got just before Case Blue, yeah. You've got two massive operations. You've got yeah, yeah. Leningrad, yeah, sucking up manpower, resources, yeah. fuel, railway wagons. You know, a thousand miles away. Yeah, and you've got Sebastopol. Yeah. So it's a victory, but quite definitely a pyrrhic one, I would say. Yeah, yeah. But this is this is the you know this is sort of. At the start of this podcast, that's what we were talking about, is that the year presents opportunities to both sides. And, I mean, it's almost it's almost as though the Germans do everything they possibly can, even though they're winning the, 
Exactly. Even though they're winning, <laughs> even though these things are victories, it's it's that it, it it's like they're really loading the dice against themselves. Completely. And the longer they do that, the, the more chances the Soviets have. And also, the more the more the Soviets fight the Germans, the better they get at it. Of course, inevitably, because they're learning lessons. It, you know, they're not inevitably. Idiots. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And those factories east of the, you know, in the Urals are starting to pump out ever more numbers of T-34s and yeah. all the rest of it. Yeah. Well, should we... I think, I think we've got to... We've got, I think we've got the end of episode one. We've set it up for the start of Case Blue in episode two of our Stalingrad week. <laughs> Could it be more exciting? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm, um, I'm itching to know what happens. It's, it's, I, I'd love to know what happens next. Will, will, the, will the Germans triumph at Stalingrad? That's the big question. <sighs> um <laughs> Um, well, there we go. We hope you enjoyed that. Uh, there will be more. Um, we've also, um, as part of this series, we've got some various other goodies, including a chat with, well, an author who put the, I think, put the battle back on the map in people's imaginations. Yeah. Um, Fascinating Jim, Jim conversation got, that was. Yeah. Jim got his little black book out and managed to rustle up Anthony Beaver. So um, there you go. Yep. Well, it was it was very interesting because it was all the conversations all about how he came to write Stalingrad, the challenges he faced, the stuff he was uncovering, yeah. and how he went about it. And it was really really interesting because, of course, that is a moment in time that won't be revisited anytime soon. You know, he had this little window to go into the Soviet archives, the only person to do so really. But even I mean, and he you know he even suggests that the, his his translator, the, his assistant who's working with him, even she didn't like the fact that. You know, what if you disrupt the picture of the motherland, sort of thing? You know, what, what yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's just fascinating. And, and, and it's encounters on trains with Soviet colonels and all yeah, sorts yeah, of yeah. skullduggery going on. Fantastic. It's an amazing story. So that was fascinating. So we'll, yeah. we'll end with that one. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we will see you uh, next time. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. Cheerio. Bye.